0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 70 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. You're listening to I Was a Desert by musician, poet, and Torah teacher, Jewish educator, Alicia Jo Rabins. I Was a Desert is written in the voice of Tamar from Genesis and is one of 30 songs available from Alicia Joe's indie folk art pop song cycle Girls in Trouble. First encountered Alicia Joe online on the Poet Moms listserve, then read and loved her newest book *Fruit Geode*, and got super curious about this mom out in Portland who seemed to do a whole bunch of different things, who seemed to be part rock star, part rabbi—an unlikely combination. I discovered that before writing the *Girls in Trouble* albums, Alicia Joe was a classically trained violinist who played for eight years in a klezmer punk band called Golem, a band I'd heard of because the lead singer is my neighbor. I discovered that Alicia Joe had written and performed a one-woman rock opera called A Kaddish for Bernie Madoff, and that this was being made into a movie? I saw she'd made a short documentary film called Chavruta about trading bat mitzvah lessons for drum lessons. I had so many questions. Invited Alicia Joe to be on Commonplace and kept reading and listening to her work every day, getting more excited to meet her in person, especially as my own sound project began to take shape. Then an episode of Between the Covers, David Naiman's excellent literary podcast, aired with none other than Alicia Joe Rabins. David Naiman's episode is fabulous, and I urge you to listen to it. He goes into great depth with Alicia, about her writing, especially her book, Fruit Geode. But I was relieved to hear he hadn't asked her all the questions that were most pressing to me—questions about performance, sound, interdisciplinary work, and the Jewish priestess revival. I spoke with Alicia Joe Rabins at my apartment in New York City on February 27, 2019. She was in town for a conference. I was bleeding heavily that morning and would likely have canceled with someone else, but I told Alicia what was going on, why I was sitting on several folded up towels, how I wasn't sure this level of bleeding was normal or not, but if she didn't mind stopping frequently, I'd like to go ahead and record. We made jokes about the scene in the Bible when Rachel sits on her father's household gods and refuses to get down off her saddled horse, saying she has her period. Alicia brought her violin and pedals, we set up in my living room with my son's amps and various microphones, and had a beautifully winding spiritual journey together, talking about performance, feminism, shame, ambition, and so much more. After Alicia Jo left, I was elated by the conversation, but also felt strange. I began to feel increasingly unwell, and eventually that night went to urgent care where I discovered that my iron levels were very low, probably due to the heavy bleeding. I ended up putting this episode aside for several months, perhaps in part because I was a bit hesitant to remember that day. The truth is I hadn't been feeling well for a while, but that day seems like a hinge between being a capable person sure of my body and someone who became so incapacitated by iron deficiency anemia that by April I was barely able to leave my apartment, barely able to think or work day after day, a sort of invalid shut-in, told that the answer to my problem was a hysterectomy, a medical procedure I'm so glad exists, but one whose history is deeply entangled with misogyny and misunderstanding of women's bodies. Returning to this recording, re-listening to Alicia's voice, music, and poems has been a healing, sustaining, invigorating, inspiring experience. Alicia reminds me that life is not linear. Sometimes it is necessary to stop working for a time, and I am not alone in my complicated longing for a Jewish community, which is always stymied by my aversion to patriarchy That there is a deep connection between my womanhood, my physical, psycho-spiritual health, creativity, and general well-being. Our conversation is not focused on motherhood, and yet this is a perfect episode to celebrate Mother's Day, to celebrate the complexity of female experience and female bodies, to celebrate anyone of any gender who is a seeker, a questioner, a maker, a caretaker, anyone who is searching for how to live a sustainable, meaningful, creative life. I love this conversation and the music that runs through it. If you're a fan of what we're doing, I hope you'll consider supporting the podcast. Commonplace is funded exclusively by patron donations. To find out how to become a patron, please go to patreon.com slash commonplace podcast or our website, commonpodcast.com. For this episode, all patrons will get exclusive access to a 20-minute outtake from this episode, where Alicia, Joe, and I talk about la Hara, literally "evil tongue," but more generally, speaking of others behind their backs. We also talk about wisdom texts, not believing in God, how performing her work with a soundtrack has changed her compositional process. All patrons will also get access to a few Girls in Trouble songs. Some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive copies of Alicia Jo Rabin's books, Divinity School and Fruit Geode, as well as C.D. Wright's posthumous work, Casting Deep Shade, Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, a download of one of the Girls in Trouble albums and access to the Girls in Trouble curriculum, and a video of Diane Wokstein performing the feminist epic, Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth. Many thanks to American Poetry Review, Augury Books, Copper Canyon, Modern Library, and Alicia Joe Rabins. Thank you to all of our generous current patrons and our future patrons. And now, here's Alicia Joe Rabins. Cool. Okay. Hi. Hi. So I know here we are. I was kind of thinking because I'm hoping that we do like lots of different things, um, talking and music and who knows what else. But I was thinking about starting off with just having you read a poem from Fruit Geode, uh, your new book, which came out recently. And I am happy to have you read whatever you want. I was sort of tickled by the idea of you reading the poem When I Lived in New York. (laughs) Um, Because here I am. (laughs) Because here you are. And I love the line which – people will hear if you agreed to read it, uh, The Bullshit Politeness of the West Coast. (laughs) Uh, So without... Sorry, Portland. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you live in Portland now. So yeah, I was hoping you'd read that poem and then we could talk a little bit about like why you're here today in my living room on the Upper West Side in New York City and also how you came to not live here anymore. Mm -hmm. Yes. Great. When I
1: lived in New York... This matzo ball soup reminds me of my grandmother. I'm so close to her here in Brooklyn, city of her birth. Darling, as she called everyone, let's be sentimentalist together and forget about her personality disorder. Forget her in the attic on St. Mark's Avenue, thinking her baby was a bouquet of flowers. Instead, regard the mama bird feeding her open-mouthed chicks. Who is the worm? I am the worm. Who is the mother? I am the mother. Juggling too many lifetimes to count, so I let them drop like planets, marbles falling on the carpet of ocean. If I were a nightingale, I'd always say the right thing. Instead, I am hedgehog, sweet gumball, prickly pear, and I stick my edges into the bullshit politeness of the West Coast. When I lived in New York, I kept my exterior polished. I thought the pigeons were nightingales. Reflection, friend, past self in the subway glass. Oh, the mornings I wasted
0: reading about how to give birth. I love that poem and it has so many things in it that I know I want to like, I want to like go into each one, but Maybe we could just start with the New York part. Yeah, I love New York. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. So tell me, like, I know you lived here for a long time. When did you live here? Uh, What were you doing here? Why did you leave? And how do you feel about it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in a suburb of Baltimore in Baltimore County. And I went to public school and there's this amazing art teacher, um, Terry McDaniel. And she um, would bring us every year on a trip to New York with um, Mrs. Pop, the other art teacher. And it was always kind of like the highlight of my school year. We would like wake up really early and all the freaks of the school would be on this, you know, chartered bus. And then all day we would just be traipsing around to these museums and it just felt like the most glamorous <laughs> possible thing. And when I was applying to colleges, I was very haphazard about the whole thing, but my mom... Um, we were at some college fair and my mom liked the Barnard table because it was all women and I wasn't particularly interested in all women's school, but I definitely was a feminist and so I kind of was like, Yeah, you know, and I like New York. And so I, I applied to that and it ended up kind of stars aligned that I went there, which was a real privilege. And so I got to move to New York at 17 to go to college. Um, and live on the Upper West Side for four years with increasing um Summer you know times downtown, <laughs> and um from the very beginning, I was as much in the city as I was at school I mean the, the old poetry calendar they used to have this was nineteen ninety four was when I started so there was this kind of broadside um of like all the poetry events of the month, and it was giant and I would just tape it on my wall every month and go to as many as i could and then i then I lived elsewhere after graduation for six years, which we can talk about if it comes up and then I was living in western Massachusetts and I was ready to kind of go somewhere else. And I was playing um, fiddle professionally. And I was like, well, maybe I'll go to Austin because it just seems like there's a lot of fiddle work. Um, And then I got this email from Annette Ezekiel, who's now Annette Ezekiel Kogan, who um, was like, hey, I have a band called Golem and we need a new fiddler and uh, somebody suggested you. And it was like love at first sight, basically musical love at first sight between me and it was a six piece band, so me and the other five people. It was like a very instant connection. And so instead of moving to Austin, I moved to New York and lived here for about 10 years. That time around somewhere in there, fall in love with um, a traveling bass player who was tour managing a band whose tour ended in New York. Then he went back to Portland where he lived and, I remember when I met him, I said, oh, Portland, that's funny, I was born in Portland, because my dad um, was in med school, he was doing his residency in Portland when I was born, so I was like a 70s Portland home birth, (laughs) which I was really born like in this apartment in in Portland, and um, so that was a big part of kind of our family mythology, it was these years that they spent there, and they were from Florida, but they had learned to hike and camp in Portland, and so it was a big kind of part of what we did as a family, so anyway, One thing led to another, and Aaron moved out here for five years, and then it was my turn to move to Portland. So now I've been there for six.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay. So when you uh, joined Gollum, I I know you were were a violin player, violinist, when you went to Barnard. Were you also, at that time, a poet? Yes. I was a more serious poet than
1: violinist. Interesting. I, um, I started playing violin when I was... Three because my mother saw a Phil Donahue show about the Suzuki method and was like, well, that looks nice. And, you know, she didn't play music. My dad didn't play music. Their parents had been kind of musical. Um, so she was like, well, I'll see if there's a local Suzuki school. And there was a branch in our suburb of Peabody Conservatory. Um, and I was certainly not a prodigy and I did grow up with real prodigies, but I liked it. And it was sort of like the way other kids play varsity soccer or something. Like it was not what it was not a career path for me. It was mm. just something I loved and my social life was built around. And I, you know, was lucky enough to go to summer camp for music composition. And it was kind of the place I felt most at home in the world. Um so that was kind of something that felt a little more like, you know, like an accident, like a happy accident. And but writing came from me. Mm. And that was always kind of what I wanted to do as a career. And first, I didn't know about poetry. So I thought I had to be a fiction writer. But then when I found out poetry existed, I was like, well, that's it. <laughs> so I was quite serious about poetry since age 10 or 11. And I knew that that's what I wanted to study at college. I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to double major or anything. I did play music in college. But, I, you know, I would, I was in a string quartet and I played in the orchestra. And I kind of studied, I took one, you know, 20th century music class. Um, but I was really there for the
0: poetry. Hmm. Yeah. And who did you work with at, at Barnard? Well, I was at a time at
1: Barnard that was a little bit between um, long-term faculty, but Claudia Rankin was there um, one year, and I, I absolutely loved her and her workshop. And this was in the mid '90s, so it was before she was like—I mean, she was a lot younger and a lot less famous, um, but every bit as like brilliant and kind of nurturing and brave. Um, so that was a real privilege. And then I think because there wasn't a really developed poetry program at Barnard at the moment, I spent most of my time across the street at um, Columbia, like Kenneth Koch was there then. Mm. So Kenneth Koch, Ron Padgett, David Lehman, kind of tail end of the New York school poetic education, which was a huge influence on me. And I, once I went to see John Ashbery read, and he had forgotten to bring his books, and I had his books. And, you know, <laughs> <so> David <laughs> Lehman was like, oh, read Alicia's copy of your books. And so it was that kind of like, it was very up close to New, York, New York school education.
0: Okay, so but then coming back to this moment when you came back to New York um, and you'd already become a fiddle player, when you joined this band, uh, I assume it was not enough to make a living at, so you were probably doing other things.
1: Yes, so I've always kind of made a certain percentage, you know, between whatever, 30 and 60% of my living with music, Um, and the rest has been – you know, little drips and drops from writing here and there, but that's definitely not a big moneymaker of it so far. But I'm a Jewish educator. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a very non-Jewish suburb of Baltimore, especially when I was growing up there. It's still, but especially then, was highly segregated, um, not only by race, but also um, by religion. And so Jews were not allowed to live in the neighborhood that we lived in until maybe 15 years before we bought the house. And so most Jewish people lived in this tight-knit Jewish, large Jewish community but my parents are – they're both Jewish, but they're also a little bit like renegade in their own subtle way, although you might not think it to just meet them. <laughs> and my dad said, why would I choose to live in the Jewish ghetto? Mm. So we grew up, you know, one of like very few Jewish families in our large public high school and just kind of – I mean, I felt—I always say I feel like I grew up religiously Jewish but culturally Protestant. Hmm. Or like we didn't celebrate Christmas, much as I kind of begged for it. But, um, you know, I went to Christian youth group because that's what all my friends did after school. And I had to convince my parents to let me, but I did. And then at Barnard, I kind of had my first encounters with Orthodox Judaism. And I had had a bat mitzvah, but it was very low content. <laughs> um, and I didn't even know what I didn't know. And so in ver- through various adventures, I found out about the existence of the Jewish text and commentary tradition And it was like this nuclear fission, I don't know what the nuclear metaphor is, but like this kind of explosion of um, my personal kind of spiritual seeking, which had been a huge part of my inner life forever. And I never knew it was something that could connect me with anything except my kind of lonely inner landscape. Um, And my kind of curiosity about my culture and my heritage and this kind of desire for a community that wasn't just based around um, shared affinities, but had something that was sort of like, even if we aren't interested in the same thing, I can still kind of show up and be welcomed. That was really intriguing to me. So that led me to go to Jerusalem after college. I totally forget why I was telling you that.
0: Well, no, that's very helpful. Is that where you lived for six years between college and Western Massachusetts? Well, well, so I, yeah, I was going to go for one year to this pretty progressive co-ed
1: run by modern Orthodox people, but you could practice any way you wanted, yeshiva called pardes. So I thought, oh, I'll go for one year and then I'll get an MFA in poetry and like, pr- or a PhD and be a professor, you know, because that was like kind of the career path that I thought poets did. And then I just fell madly in love. I mean, the taste that I had gotten of text that had blown my mind was like a, a million fold mm-hmm. once I was actually learning Hebrew and learning Aramaic and studying the text in the original and living all the traditions around the text. And it, it was just this incredible kind of meaning and. Uh, creativity that i found in those traditions so i ended up staying a second year um of full time study fell in love there <laughs> this <a> theme <laughs> after my two years were over i didn't really have anywhere specific i needed to be so i went to this guy's hometown which was um basically amherst northampton area uh-huh
0: yeah okay so i'm interested in all of this and and how it fits together and also how it doesn't yeah. fit together and how you know how one thing led to another and Part of how both of us came to be who we are right at this moment is a lot of accidents and strange paths and stuff. But I think what I'm going towards is this question of like, okay, so when you joined this uh, band... At that point, you had thought, you know, your primary identity for a little while was poet, but then you were still making music and you had, you know, fallen in love with Judaism and Jewish study and Jewish learning, and then you'd fall, also fallen in love, and, yeah. you know, that had taken you to different geographical locations. So when you become this fiddler in a klezmer band... yeah. Um, and I know that klezmer is only one part, but it is – wouldn't you call Gollum a, ple- a klezmer? Oh, yeah. But yeah yeah, yeah. Um, were you also coming as a poet? Were you writing songs? Were you – like tell me like wh- who – like if you had had to describe yourself at that moment, yeah. were you a musician? Were yeah. you – yeah, like yeah. who were you? Well, so there's one other – I apologize for all the <laughs> autobiography, but there's one
1: other strand which I think is important to say, which is that in college I also – Found out about and fell in love with um, a traditional American fiddle music mm. um, and started playing it just obsessively <laughs> because that's who I am. And as started playing on the street because I learned it from a busker, I learned fiddle music from a busker. So before I even moved to Jerusalem, I was sort of making my pocket money by busking and playing um, bluegrass on the street. And when I moved to Western Mass, there's a very strong fiddle community. So one thing that happened there was that I ended up meeting people my age who were also kind of folk royal, like Pete Seeger's grandson and this fiddler, Jay Unger's daughter. And we all made a band together. And because of who they were, it very quickly became a professional band. Mm. In Western Mass, I was a basically kind of halftime professional fiddle player, musician. And halftime, I was teaching like remedial Hebrew at the Jewish day school. And so by that point in my early 20s, I was already doing the three things that have become, you know, kind of my my life, which are music, writing, and Jewish education, teaching mm. Torah. And at that point, they were all very, very separate. And I just thought, okay, I do three things. That's a little weird. But <laughs> it's hard to explain when people ask what I do. Um, and none of my resumes looks very good, because you can't add them all up into one resume. And so it felt very natural to me to kind of be my musician self with Golem. And, you know, it was no secret that I wrote poetry, but I was just, you know, a musician in that in that context. You know, and then I actually ended up getting a Low residency MFA at Warren Wilson. So I would tour with Golem. And then, you know, backstage I'd be working on my like poetry annotations. And um, and over the years things slowly began to coalesce, where then I kind of just lived long enough and was a practitioner of all these things long enough where I could kind of go a level up and be like, oh, this is my project. And it expresses itself in various ways. I happen to be kind of trained in these various traditions, but really at the core, it's me exploring the same
0: Yeah. I mean, and there almost feels like there's a mystical element to all of it. Like, you know, I do not associate American fiddler music with Judaism. In some ways, I would say the two seem antithetical almost. But then when I think about klezmer, I think oh I just didn't see that I didn't I didn't notice you know the common ancestors or the the sort of wellspring you know that that they that feeds both of those um even if historically that's somewhat inaccurate well you know musicologically
1: the the history of those strands is different but in terms of American music um actually a lot of the kind of folk revival people were like New York Jews who got really interested in this kind of, you know, these American traditions that were being lost in Appalachia because the young people there were like, I'm getting out of here, I'm escaping, you know, that felt like this kind of oppressive culture of their grandparents, you know. And so these young New York Jews, and obviously not just Jewish people, but there was a large part of um, that scene, you know, would either go down and be the collectors or then, build new music based on that and be inspired by it. And, you know, the story of the Klezmer revival is that finally one of these like 80 year old West Virginia or wherever he was, you know, fiddlers said, don't you people have any music of your own? And this like, you know, guy in his early 20s went back and was like, oh, my God, these Klezmer records of my grandparents in Queens, which I was like this gross old yucky music that's like musty is exactly the same as these (laughs) bluegrass and old timey tunes um, down here. And so they began to basically do the same kind of ethnomusicological rescuing and revivifying that had happened with bluegrass. So it is tied together.
0: Yeah, I I mean, that question just gave me chills, the question of don't you have any music of your own? Yes. Um, because I, there are probably people listening who have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about American fiddle music or klezmer. Could you play a little of each? Yeah, totally. That'd be so awesome. Okay.
1: All right. Well, should I go for it? Yeah, go for okay. it. <laughs> so here's one of here's one of my favorite old timey tunes. Awesome. So that's like an old timey um, tune. And then here's a klezmer tune.
0: Awesome. So I just want to know what your life was like at that time. You're in the band. You are getting your low residency MFA. So you're writing. And were you also actively um, a Jewish educator at that point? Yeah. So during the eight years I played
1: with Golem, I also got a master's in Jewish women's and gender studies at wow. uh-huh. Um And the whole time I was, yeah, I was um, doing a lot of Bot Mitzvah tutoring in Brooklyn. Uh-huh.
0: And I mean, I can imagine it both being like a really fun, wild party life. And I can also imagine it being a really kind of, I guess what uh, one question I'm dancing it was, it around. It was a fun party life. It was a fun yes. party life. I mean, I think one question I'm dancing around and not asking, but why am I not asking you, yes, is partly like, you know, so because my path, through Judaism and like to this point in my life was kind of the opposite because I went to Ramaz from first to eighth grade and was so turned off by that kind of Jewish education that I really was like, I really developed a lot of very strong anti-Jewish feelings Mm -hmm. and was like, I'm never going to do any of these things. I'm not going to treat children this way. I'm not going to live this life. Mm. Judaism is not important mm-hmm. to me. Um, you know, when I went to high school, it almost felt like I was like getting out of a cult. Mm-hmm. But it also was so deeply, profoundly a part of not just my identity, but my cultural references, the stories that I had grown up with. You know, my my Jewish literacy was very high. Right. <laughs> um, the opposite of me. <laughs> right. And so – I think I have like a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction, especially to women who kind of find Judaism or fall in love with Judaism. And the questions for me are often about religiosity, like, mm. you know, were you trying to keep kosher? Were you mm. like not having premarital sex? Mm. Were you, you know, were you going to a mikvah? Were you, you know, and in a way, those questions that as they occur to me are really a product of my own Uh, anxiety Mm -hmm. about religious Mm -hmm. Judaism, um, Mm -hmm. and not at all Mm -hmm. uh, really an appropriate or reasonable response to the life that you're describing. I love those questions, though. (laughs) I mean, what that makes me think of is like
1: somebody who was like a classical prodigy, kind of forced to like not play sports because you could hurt your fingers and don't play with your friends because you need to be practicing. And like, who kind of grew up only knowing music and which I think actually happens a lot with classical prodigies where that you kind of break, um, and just never want to touch an instrument again, talking to someone who like picked up a guitar in high school and was like, Oh my God, freedom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that, cause that was my experience. Like my experience was, my parents were very scared when I was like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and study Torah. And they were like, Oh my God, you're going crazy. What's mm-hmm. wrong with you? You're joining a cult. 'Cause I think their you know, their their grandparents had pretty much the same response you did, which was like are we allowed to curse on this yeah they're
0: like fuck this like yeah. why would i you know you use that mouse in front of my great-grandfather <laughs> goodman gutworth oh my god look at that! you're literally i t- i just like literally studying the talmud he is he is literally studying the talmud oh. i mean we'll post a picture on social media but yeah i mean i just took a picture um of alicia playing the klezmer oh, music in front of goodman gutworth it's a it's a Sorry, huge maybe. photograph <laughs> um well yeah i mean i think he had to deal with uh wayward daughters himself.
1: Yeah. Um, Right. And I I mean, my wayward daughter direction was to be like, what's in this kind of basically forbidden tradition? Yeah. I have an intense awareness of and hunger for kind of the sacred. Mm. And so I would like make up these rituals and make, you know, potions, which I think a lot of kids do, but like kind of incantations and then In high school, it was like drugs and not actually in a nihilistic escaping way, but in a very much like spiritual seeking way. And actually, like psychedelics were a major teacher for me. Mm -hmm. Um, It really prepared me for like Jewish mysticism in a lot of ways, I feel like. And so there's a privilege in being kind of immersed in it as a child. And there's also a deep cost to that for many people. And then there's a privilege in having the freedom to totally walk away at any moment. And then there's also a cost to that, you know. I mean, I I very much see existence as as cyclical. And I'm actually working on a spiritual memoir. And there's a basically one segment that's like, if I had grown up Orthodox, I know that at the same age at which I began experimenting with keeping the Shabbat, I you know, keeping Shabbat, I would have been like in McDonald's ordering my first bacon cheeseburger <laughs> 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 because I had to see what else was out there. And so for me, that's, that's what traditional Judaism was. Yeah. And it, it but it legitimately fulfilled um, some needs for kind of ritual. And I almost saw it as I still kind of do it as like kind of a sculptural use of art in time of using, you know, Heschel kind of writes about this, but using time as an artistic medium of structuring time in a way that brings intentionality to it, the same way that structuring sound um, intentionally makes music and structuring objects intentionally a sculpture, you know. So I, I experience ritual as um, that in time, and I and I need that. And I, I really treasure the ability to walk away from that also. I mean, I'm also resistant to it. Mm-hmm. I'm not orthodox at all. Um, my family is not like traditionally observant in any strict way. But the things that work for us, we really maintain as rituals. And it's like a, a loving and joyful part of our family life that I'm so grateful for that I wouldn't have been able to have without having kind
0: of learned that vocabulary. Right. and And I had to really come back, but without maybe – the fun of (laughs) feeling that it was a rebellion, which has been really interesting to me. I mean, just my two older sons, they did not go to Jewish schools, Mm -hmm. Jewish day schools. Um, there's no way I would have done that, Mm -hmm. uh, just for me. Mm -hmm. But then came the question like, well, so what kind of Jewish education do I want them to have? Do we choose to have, Mm -hmm. do we make for them? Mm -hmm. That's not in conflict, um, and what will they choose? And my oldest son's bar mitzvah was in the afternoon in the synagogue on Saturday with a very just amazing, not, technically a rabbi rabbi Mm -hmm. um, who has just been one of the most important parts of my kids lives. Mm. Um, This guy Jerry Rake who is just unbelievable. And then um, the next morning the bar mitzvah party Mm -hmm. was just dim sum in Chinatown. Um, And then like, we walked to a park in Chinatown and some kids played pickup football and stuff. Um, And my second son's bar mitzvah was in a youth hostel and by then Jerry had through donations, acquired a Torah Mm. that he carries in a backpack Mm. (laughs) that he could bring to the youth hostel. Yeah. And we had it there. And, you know, it was just, it was incredible. Mm. It was like really, I felt so lucky to be able to have come to a place that felt somewhat comfortable. Yes. Like for me to find Jewish organizations or Jewish leaders who are not in conflict Mm -hmm. with my essential core values, which is what Judaism used to feel like for me, um, it just feels like one of the biggest gifts of all time.
1: It's like a form of intersectionality. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. Anyway, okay, so let's go back though. So you went back to, or you not went back to, but you moved we to moved Portland. There together, yeah, right. With moved our baby. To, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then how would you talk about like sort of the balance between mm. these three things in your life now or lately? And of course, there being a fourth part of your life, which intersects, I'm sure, with mm-hmm. all of these being your children and mm-hmm. becoming a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you're a Jewish educator, you're a poet, you're a musician, you're a mother. Because what I really want to get to is the way in which you've combined um, all of these things mm-hmm. most recently.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, moving to Portland was one of the hardest things I've ever, I didn't expect it to be that hard. It wasn't hard in advance, but it was hard in actuality to move across the country from everything that I've known, you know, and I was 35 and had a one-year-old Um and so I really had a, a full life. And, you know, I, in New York I feel like people are always coming and going and it's kind of normal to be, like show up and be like, what's going on? And there everyone's like, okay, yeah, we have our thing going on. You know, there's a lot of loss of the structures that I saw as my life. But the beauty of that loss was that I got to see what was still there when everything fell away. So what was left was, I mean – the need to survive financially and my passion for all of these things that I do. And what was in Portland that hadn't been in New York was this kind of abundance of time and space. So what started to happen in that spaciousness was that I just kept doing what I had been doing. And it was also, you know, art for me as a matter of kind of emotional survival. So the harder things are, the more art I make. <laughs> and... um I'm 42. I just turned 42. So, as I kind of rounded the corner towards 40 and kind of had let go of all these structures that had held my life for previous decades, I began to sense what was underneath all my practices, like I was kind of saying before, and just this interest in the sacred, an interest in where ancient texts and traditions intersect with the little exigencies of, of contemporary life, what it feels like to be alive right now as us, whoever us is, whoever, you know, me, where does that intersect with, you know, this kind of wisdom text from 2,000 years ago that I feel so connected to, whether Jewish or, or Buddhist or, you know, Christian or a, any any tradition, but just kind of ancient wisdom in general, what we pass on as humans, um, and art as a means of engaging with Meaning and the sacred, and and I'm specifically also interested in like being a woman, (laughs) what it means, what it feels like, what the story of that has been, especially you know over these millennia and also in daily lived
2: experience. I opened up my mouth, but no words came, and I laid down to sleep, but I did not dream. Oh, oh, oh.
1: It, you know, I have this song cycle called Girls in Trouble it Began as my master's thesis in Jewish studies at JTS And every song is about a different woman or girl from Torah And I write it in the character's voice based on all this textual research But it's kind of indie indie folk style Some are more indie rock, some are more kind of traditional American or klezmer So that's like combining, you know, songwriting. And there's like the lyrics and then there's the music and then there's the Jewish text underlying it. So that's, for example, a project that really ties together all of them. And then sometimes a project will really, I mean, certain poems in my new book have nothing to do with, you know, music or Judaism overtly. But I'm so kind of made of all of these things at this point that everything touches everything else.
0: To some extent, my mother was very much working on on retelling um, biblical stories and particularly the stories of women. She was obsessed with the story of Ruth. Mm. Um, and her mother's name was Ruth. Mm. and um, But like really trying to re-envision these stories. And I mean, I've written about this before, but for sure that's part of what was happening for me when I was working on my first book of poetry Mm. that became Eating in the Underworld, you know, thinking about the story of Persephone from Mm -hmm. Persephone's perspective. And I think at that point in my life, I wouldn't have been able to do that with a Jewish text. And, you know, only through doing that With non-Jewish texts and, you know, then later really looking at these um, paintings of the Annunciation and thinking Mm -hmm. about Mary and Mm -hmm. who Mary was Mm -hmm. like that was my rebellion was Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go into these churches and I'm going to look at these paintings of Mary and I'm going to think about Mary and, Mm and. you know, nobody is going to stop me and I'm going to, but that really came out of my Talmud education, Mm, mm -hmm. but then applied to non-Jewish texts and then to come back to, you know, don't you have any stories of your own? Don't you have any music of your own? Uh, And to think like, oh, this has been here for me. So there is such a thing as the Jewish priestess revival or tradition or, I mean, this is something I've really only heard of through you. Very mm. recently, I feel like something has been happening behind my back, and I don't. I'm like, probably sort of...
1: within a few blocks of you. Actually, <laughs>
0: I know. <laughs> um, so, can you talk about what that is? Are you allowed to? Is it secret? Well, I,
1: I don't want to um, pretend. So, there's this amazing rabbi, Jill Hammer, mm-hmm. um, who was ordained as a conservative rabbi, is like deeply versed in you know traditional, old school Jewish text study. And also is this, you know, deep feminist um, who has been reclaiming this priestess tradition. And I, I'm i a, a far satellite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not like, a, you know, a tech- she has a, a training institute called Co- the Kohenet um, Institute, I think. Or- and so and Kohenet means female priest. It's a feminine Hebrew word for priest, which is Kohain. And there's one on the east coast and one on the west coast, and they have these residencies. It's sort of like a low residency MFA, but to become a Jewish priestess, <laughs> and they're training this cohort of, of I think, you know, definitely women identified and maybe also non-binary um, people who are kind of reclaiming this other kind of spiritual leadership within the Jewish tradition. Mm. I feel like, you know, mystical traditions and women's traditions don't get written down or preserved in the same way as more kind of mainstream masculine textual traditions. Um, Certainly in Judaism, that's the case. And I saw – I mean, I saw it, you know, outside of Judaism that, like, the doctors don't know anything about labor. I mean, they don't know what starts labor, the most basic thing. And, and I really appreciate the scientific, you know, how many lives are saved by the scientific approach to birth. I don't in any way want to denigrate that part of the puzzle. But the other part of the puzzle is that when things are going fine, the kind of wisdom that midwives bring, which is intuitive, is a different kind of science, I would say, actually. It's, it's more valuable in, in those moments when when things are working, which is, you know, I think the majority of the time. And I think there's a similar kind of tradition within probably every spiritual tradition. So, you know, I'm not really affiliated officially with Rabbi Jill Hammer's Kohenet movement, but I feel very much spiritually aligned with this idea of bringing back, um, you know, the feminine divine in a broader way than the way that it has been described it has survived in Judaism as Shechina, which is very, very, you know, beautiful concept of this kind of feminine, um, embodied, a kind of earthly indwelling presence of God. But instead of thinking of that as like one out of a hundred ways of describing God, actually interacting with the divine as truly non-binary and probably leaning towards feminine in order to balance out all the years of, you know, masculine, um, I think is really transformative. And if you come to prayer and ritual officiation from that perspective as foundational, as opposed to kind of an add on, it really transforms the quality of the
0: practice. And that's definitely something I'm kind of thinking about and working with a lot now. I want to say something and it might get me into trouble So I'm going to try to say it both like directly and carefully, which is you helped me realize something that's been kind of bugging me or that I've been circling around, which is that I went to probably one of the most amazing uh, bat mitzvahs I've ever attended in my life. And um, it was led by a very amazing female rabbi um, who is a conservative rabbi. Um, She has a wife and they have two children together. And there was a part of me that was so moved. I believe she was one of, if not the first, uh, one of the first um, women rabbis ordained um, by JTS. And yet there were parts of this service that were deeply troubling to me or that were uncomfortable mm-hmm. to me. And they were the parts of the service that were conservative. Mm. Um, so uh, the two dads, there's a mom and two dads, and the two dads did not go up for an Aliyah because neither of them are Jewish. Mm. And I just felt like, what is this? Like what, what is happening at this moment where this amazing rabbi was the first, you know, or one of the first to be allowed to practice and to be a spiritual leader in this conservative tradition. But what that means to her is to maintain these traditions that are essentially, you know, uh, exclusionary. Mm. And I just really was struggling with that. And I was thinking about this while you were talking, the way in which You know, I am so glad that there are more and more women in medicine. Um, I'm so glad that there are more and more female Mm OBGYNs. But – and I really want to be careful about not – turning women against women Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not in any way saying this kind of birth is better than this kind Mm -hmm, of birth, mm -hmm. this kind of doctor is better than this kind. But, you know, if you're going to be trained as an OBGYN, you are a surgeon and you're going to practice medicine from a surgeon's perspective. I'm not saying that you're not also going to change the field to some extent, but I do think that what you're describing in a Jewish priestess, um tradition or or, or uh, invention mm-hmm. is about a, a transformational foundational uh shift that to me is um really different than representation mm-hmm. which is essential mm-hmm. but uh you know I learned I'll just speak from my own experience cuz maybe that's that's better which is in my first birth, I had uh, a female OBGYN who was a very fancy pansy you know, New York OBGYN. And, you know, it was okay. It certainly was not the birth I wanted. She bullied me. She made me no. feel terrible mm-hmm. in lots of different ways. She induced me two and a half weeks early. Oh, I didn't know anything. You know, it was lucky that that I was able to have a vaginal birth considering, mm-hmm. you know, basically... You know, what I know now looking back, it was not a midwifery model of care by any stretch of the imagination. And so I think that that's really interesting to think about. For me, I'm not necessarily looking for a woman who's going to act (laughs) in the conservative tradition. I'm looking for what was lost, what has been lost, what Mm -hmm. can be reclaimed, Mm -hmm. what can be imagined. Of what used to be female wisdom that wasn't written down, female spirituality that can be uh, practiced and enjoyed by men, women, non-binary mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. It's not exclusive in that way. But like, what could Judaism be mm-hmm. if it wasn't stuck? What could government be? What could yeah, yeah? What could medicine be? What could, what what could be? Yes. What could parenting be? Yes. What could yeah? Yes. What could all of these things yes. be? And I think that feels really intrinsic to your work, as mm-hmm. I as I read it, both mm-hmm. on the page or hear about it, or the projects that you've done. Mm-hmm. Like there are certain things about you which I love. How incongruous they seem, <laughs> like super. And I and I feel like if, if I were to have to like choose just a few adjectives, that would be one of them. Like I love that word. Like I'm so easily bored. I have to like <laughs> shake it up. You know. I mean. You know, the the trailer for the film of um, your project, A Kaddish for Bernie Madoff, <laughs> I mean, you know, I want you to talk about what it is, but like the picture, the image of you playing the violin... <laughs> and writing music in like an empty office space in wall street and you know the jewish piece of Madoff, and <laughs> I, you know i'm just like cringing <laughs> and yeah, totally. you know and the uh, the feminist part of it and the anti-capitalist part mm. of it and the but also like underneath it all i really feel like you're interested in integrating or bringing together even if they are just contradictory mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and putting side by side. Like what happens if I write a rock opera about <laughs> Bernie Madoff while I'm in Wall Street, uh, you know, and what is my responsibility as, as somebody who is culturally associated with this person and what's my perspective and where's my body and where's, mm-hmm, you know, so mm-hmm. I don't know. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you <laughs> you get
1: me yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> so
0: talk about that piece that is there's the that is i first of all i can't wait for the film to come out are you fully funded is it is it no, no? if anyone if there's any angels
1: out there we're yeah. about half funded so yeah, we're funded. we're in you know good shape but we're still applying for grants and fundraising um and i'm fiscally sponsored so i can accept you know donations but um so there's this amazing nonprofit, LMCC, Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, and they have this year-long – they have various programs, and one of them is a year-long artist residency in temporarily unrented, unused space in the financial district, which they grant to artists. So you get basically get an office. <laughs> and there's a big group of artists, and you each get your own little office, you know, kind of around a big central space. Um, and there's visual artists, and there's writers, and, you know, interdisciplinary artists. And so – basically the year of the financial collapse, I got that residency and I was so excited to work on what would actually became my first book, Divinity School. I was working on a lot of the poems there um, and writing Girls in Trouble songs. And I thought, I'll just ignore my, you know, Wall Street means nothing to me. I'll just ride my bike in from Brooklyn, lock it up and like do my work in my little office. And then the financial collapse happened and suddenly, you know, the because of that, Bernie Madoff basically had to you know, reveal that, or at least tell his sons who revealed that his huge hedge fund was actually a Ponzi scheme and had never actually invested any money at all. And it was the largest financial crime in history. And so suddenly, I felt like instead of Wall Street feeling like this boring, bland you know, backdrop to the real action, which was my art life. I was like, actually, this is pretty interesting. (laughs) Um, And I could kind of look out my window and see people like just kind of ashen phase, like carrying these, you know, their stuff out of their office because the industry was collapsing around me. And I was also like, I'm the one who gets to stay in my office. (laughs) And it was totally dilapidated (laughs) because it was unrented. And so it's like, you know, things are like falling off the ceiling. But it's like I had a key and I had access till June, you know. Um, And so I started to... I just started to think a lot about um, what is modern American finance and and who was Bernie Madoff, which I didn't know anything about. Um, What does it mean that I'm Jewish? I'm from this, you know, tribe and that he's Jewish and I had no connection to him. But I think in the way that any, quote, minority person, like when somebody from your culture does something horrible that's all over the news, you kind of shudder. And, you know, this played into these anti-Semitic stereotypes about um, money and deception. And I didn't really see people talking about it. I, mean, I saw a lot of anti-Semitic posts on threads. And then I saw a couple rabbis addressing it, um, you know, from a kind of moral point of view, obviously. But it, I also felt like, I, I don't know, I wanted to look directly at it with the power that art can bring, which is that I didn't have to moralize. I could just kind of meditate on it and be like, what happened here? And the more I researched, the more I kind of realized that there's this common assumption which I shared that he was offering these really high returns. And so people were just so greedy that they looked past the obvious scamness of it, scamminess. Um uh, but the truth was that his returns were just in line with the market. And the only difference was that because he was making them up, they were consistent. So there were no kind of like drops where suddenly your stocks were worth less and gains where suddenly they were worth more. It was just this 45-degree angle going up. And I was so captivated by the fact that the market is an organic thing because it's made by humans and it's maintained by humans. And so it goes up and it goes down. And people who care about it are horrified when it goes down and are elated when it goes up. And there's this you know kind of fantasy of like unending economic growth that well it's just going to keep going up and up and up in the in the long term and and that's what his actually did like his was the ideal and it's cuz it was made up i mean it was essentially an, a giant horrible performance art piece for 40 years where he just put all the money in this account and never actually invested anything (laughs) and wrote fake stock reports every single month of like, I invested in it, you you know, your money is here and this is how much it's worth. And they're making them up after the fact, every every single statement. So I just wanted to kind of look at like Jewish and Buddhist texts about the inevitability of cycles Mm. and compassionately look at the human desire for safety and security and our fear of loss, my own fear of loss in every way, I mean, loss of, of things and people that I love and loss of security, but also just kind of failure. And this was a very risky piece to make and it still is. And there's this huge, possi- every step of it. I mean, it was a theater show and I'd never done theater before. I'd been performing for years as a musician, but, um, I, there was a very high learning curve and I debuted it at Joe's pub, which is like a pretty, really nice venue. And I, you know, I had to kind of fill it for two shows and perform the solo show for an hour, um, And so I was very aware also of my own kind of thought patterns around like my own fear of failure um, and this kind of perfectionistic tendency and kind of opening up a little bigger to like what happens if we see the ups and downs as the journey.
2: Something happened in the last 100 years With ever more elaborate financial instruments
1: I interviewed this amazing um, Buddhist monk who's also Jewish Norman Fisher um, who's also a poet who's amazing and and um, I turned I did these interviews and turned them into songs and he said the only transcendence is fully embracing the ups and the downs and even then we all get old and die Mm. and that became the song that kind of it's the penultimate song of the of the show
2: it never could happen before but now Away we start to develop this unconscious faith that money can protect us from tragedy and no.
1: that's it you know and so it's like well given that then how do we choose to live each day so a director in Portland um I approached her her about just documenting the piece before I sort of you know put it into archival stages because touring it was getting to be too much and then she said let's make an actual movie out of it because it's, it wouldn't um it would be so much better to watch and it's you know one woman show is not that hard to transform into a movie so we're going to hopefully do production
0: in the summer so cool. And is the movie going to be the show or is it going to be the show and the making of the show or is we're we're translating it into
1: like a sort of multi-genre hybrid movie Um, so it's there is full-length projected animation in the live show so and so I'm going to work with the animator there'll be animation throughout it um, in and out and then just normal kind of live action filming and then music videos for the songs Uh it's going to be a hybrid of those three so it's not it's not a documentary it's like it's basically you know the show itself was me in monologues and songs telling the story of this year so it's going to be the same structure but instead of telling it we'll be sort of showing it with a little bit of voiceover telling as well.
0: I love the animation. Can can you remind me the name of the animator?
1: Yes. His name is Zach Margolis. Uh He's actually my husband's best friend, (laughs) and he's an incredible um, Portland-based animator.
0: It's beautiful. It is really incredible. So um, I want to ask you, I have this theory. (laughs) Let me say it this way. Obviously, you know, there are a lot of incredibly brave – ambitious, wacky, creative poets. But I also think that it is unusual for poets to say, I'm going to make a one-woman show of this (laughs) crazy (laughs) crazy thing. (laughs) And um, I feel... I definitely felt during my MFA and even afterwards that there's a certain amount of pressure to stay in your lane Mm -hmm. um, in poetry, which is so stupid. Um, And maybe I'm imagining it Mm. and maybe it's like from other parts of my life. But I have felt for a long time, you Mm. know, don't write in other genres. Mm. Don't, you know engage other artistic disciplines. Mm -hmm. When the truth is that like most of the poets that I really love the most and admire the most and, you know, I'm close with, like once you, you get close enough to them, it turns out they're also like really serious about painting or, Mm -hmm. you know, music Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. And, and that, that actually, I, I feel like people don't know so much and that there's this idea and maybe everybody Got the memo earlier than I did. But I feel like there was this idea that if you're going to be really good at something, you know, Malcolm Gladwell says you have to Mm -hmm. do 10,000 hours of writing poetry. Mm -hmm. And so you better not get distracted. You know, these things are going to distract you from being a prodigy or being good. And I feel like this sort of origin story um, that you have of playing the violin, performing, but knowing you were not a prodigy mm-hmm. and being a uh, near prodigy. And the most important thing is that you kept playing mm-hmm. and that that you made the violin your own, mm. you know, and then you became, you know, a fiddle player. Like you <laughs> you you chose it the way that you also chose Judaism, the mm-hmm. way that you also chose, you know, these other things in your life. Mm. And I feel like that may be part of, like, what gave you the ability to, like, push through what must have been several <laughs> obstacles <sighs> around, <laughs> like, like who, do you, who did you think you were that you were going to put on this one woman show at Joe's Pub? And, like, now that you're making a film and now that you're doing all these things, yeah. like, it's not so easy. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's two answers. One is that um... –
1: I want to acknowledge my privilege that I always knew that my parents were a safety net if I needed it. Mm -hmm. And they paid for college, so I didn't have college loans. And so other than that, which is huge, it's been important to them and me that I've supported myself, um, you know, since I graduated college and, you know, paid for my own graduate degrees. And so I think that the need to support myself has been very helpful because... uh, like, I would never have done a cottage for Bernie Madoff except that I had the idea, I do love doing crazy things, and then I I applied for a major grant, and then I got it. Then I had to do it. And that grant was actually what basically got me through the next two years after the fellowship on Wall Street, which were also the years that I uh, got pregnant and I had my first kid. Like, I needed – the $10,000 a year that I got for two years to pay my rent. And so it, I, there was no way I could back out of it. I mean, it wasn't an option. And that has always been a really good kick in the ass for me because, I mean, that's what I love about the business of art as much as, <laughs> as, much as there are really horrible things about it, um, that like the need to hustle – you know, I had like whatever it was that I had to make that month and so I would just hustle and that – I think that was really important. I have such high standards for the art that I create, especially when I was younger and especially in those moments when I was like creating this show. I was so aware of everything that I didn't know that I was like nearly paralyzed by anxiety but not, you know, <laughs> because I also do have this but I also have this like, well, who's going to tell me I can't do this? same the way my dad was like, well, I'm not going to live in the Jewish ghetto. I'm like, well, I'm not going to be in the poetry ghetto. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm like 55% like, whatever, I have an idea I'm going to do it. And 45% like, oh my God, this is going to suck. So I just don't want anyone to have the impression that I was like, not paralyzed by anxiety throughout the entire, pro- near paralyzed by anxiety throughout the entire process. And the other thing, the last thing that I'll say is that I was that serious about poetry kind of in the way that you're talking about in college where like that was all I cared about. And I did music for fun, but I wanted to be the best poet I could be. And I remember there was like a profile on me in my high school literary magazine, and it was called The Distance to Perfection because I said that I measured my work by the – not by what I achieved, but by the distance to perfection. I was like <laughs> such an asshole. So I was like 16, you know, and I was very serious about it. And then I went to Barnard and then I studied poetry, like I took every single poetry class and I like entered all these contests and, uh, you know, just did – and I went to every reading I could get my hands in, like just, you know, I interned at um, a a fancy poetry nonprofit downtown and then I I worked there in the summer and – That last summer when I was working there, you know, I was like a lowly, I was hired, um, but I was a lowly administrative assistant. And so when you're the administrative assistant, you get all the calls from like the famous poets who are scheduled to come and give readings. And like a lot of them were not nice to me and kind of like seemed miserable. And there was so much insecurity. It was weird. Like I could just tell that they weren't comfortable in their skin, not as humans, but like as – like in their industry, you know, like to use a gross word for poetry. But like they were kind of these famous 60-something poets. But you know that way that like a famous – not elder, elder, but like kind of master artist can – it's so dark when you see them be unkind or needy in a way where it's clear that they're asking – I've seen this as a student as well. Like – They're like, they need their validation from you too or from the organization that's hiring them for this thing that messed up this thing because they weren't listed right on the program. You know what I mean? And that was happening at the same time that I was getting interested in Judaism specifically, but I think also just like spiritual practice. And I realized that I was headed for that. Like I felt like it's fun that I like play fiddle music or whatever, but like my only passion in life was really poetry And the way that I judged myself was like, what did I write today? Was it up to my own standards? And that was my judge for myself as a human being and like whether I had a good day and whether I was a good person. I was like, that is fucking bullshit, you know? So, you know, I was 21 and I was like, this is not a ground on which to build a healthy life and kind of sustainability has always been in my mind. Um, I have always seen time I've been able to zoom in and zoom out in this weird way. And it it can be a real hardship for getting through the day. And it can be a false – there can be a false prophecy element of it where I can kind of predict bad futures. But in this case, I think I was right Mm -hmm. (laughs) in predicting a bad future for myself. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to stop writing because I never decided to write. I always felt called to be a writer. You know, I was lucky to be told early on that I was good at it. And I got this like external – you know, encouragement, and then I had my internal fire, and there was nothing dampening that fire. I just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it kind of consumed my entire life, and it was the only meaning to my life and I was like i'm I'm an adult now, and i want to I want to have a good life um and no one's gonna remember me no matter how good I am at poetry. like it's just not gonna happen so I'm going to stop writing poetry. And I think I had like recently reread Letters to a Young Poet where Rilke says basically if you don't have to write, don't. (laughs) I was like, you know what? He's right. I need to see if I can live without it because I've never even tried. And so I stopped writing and that coincided with deciding to go to yeshiva. I was like, I'm going to do this whole other thing where I'm going to learn about what it means to be a human and a good human apart from what you produce and how hooked into some scene you are and what people have told you you're good at. And I'm not going to write unless it comes out of me. I won't stop it if it comes out, but I'm not going to – my muscle of intentionality of writing is, you know, just resting. And it took me four years before I wrote another poem. And then it just kind of came out. And I think those four years where I was just doing music, that's probably why I became a professional musician, they were really huge for me. And it was sort of like when I moved to Portland where, like, the entire metric of my life was suddenly meaningless – And what I had was what was in front of me. And so ever since then, I have had this kind of lightness to my relationship with my artistic practice where I'm like, I really do care. It does drive me crazy, my fear that it's not going to be good enough or I'm going to embarrass myself or it's going to be a failure. Um, But under that, I'm like, whatever, I'm going to die. No one's going to remember me. No matter how good it is, you know, no one's really that impressed or like that disappointed, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that is the big picture of why I do
0: weird projects. I... (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm so grateful for that answer that I'm just sort of like absorbing it and absorbing it and absorbing it. I'm so lucky that I know I'm going to get to re-listen to you say that um, many times. And I I guess I feel like I should ask you what's kind of a rude question. Um, So you're 42, Mm -hmm. you just said and I want to know how it's turned out for you at this ripe old age of 42. Mm-hmm. You have two books of poetry. The first one mm-hmm. won a prize by C.D. Wright, mm-hmm. which must have been you know, huge for you, and that's Divinity School, and now you have Fruit Geode, and they are amazing, wonderful books mm-hmm. published with small presses, mm-hmm. which is amazing, mm-hmm. but you don't have 15 books out. Mm. You're not a tenure track professor. Mm. You're not, you know, in some ways, I guess I'm asking you, do you think of yourself as a successful poet? Do you think of yourself as a successful human being? Do you feel, um, I mean, I feel like I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you because mm. I want to hear you I wanna say hear, it. I want to hear your answer. <laughs> um, I mean, do you feel like you made the right choice?
1: Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I don't even feel like it was a I just feel so grateful and privileged to be, to have been able to follow my instincts Yeah, at every step of my life, really. I'm very ambitious because ambition brings me a lot of joy. I mean, I love having a goal to work towards and it gives my life a lot of meaning. I don't like really care in a certain way if I make that goal because again, like if you just zoom out a couple levels… You're like eaten by worms, you know, and forgotten. <laughs> you know, there's that great um, Jewish story that, like, this. You know, Reb Zusia says, like, you know, when when I'm at the end of my life, when when I die, and I, I go up, and and God calls me to judge me, He will not say, Zusia, why were you not Moses? He will say, Zusia, why were you not Zusia? Mm. And I I believe that. I mean, mm. I don't think there's a metric in the sky, <laughs> you know. Like, I don't. If there were one, I think it would be at the deepest core of each of us. But really, I think that's a linear model, which I don't really subscribe to. I think like what, what there is, is like this moment. And I'm so happy to be talking to you. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. So another reason that I got really excited about talking to you is because I know that with Fruit Geode, when you read the book, you have a soundtrack, maybe that's not exactly the right word. That's what, I, yeah, that's what I you call word, it. Yeah. A, yeah. Live, a live soundtrack. Yeah. Yes. And so can you talk about why you did mm. that, how you do it, and can you do it? <laughs> yes. Yes and yes.
1: I did kind of intentionally, as I, as I began to approach 40, I had a, a kind of hunger for integration. Um, and so some of it I think was happening naturally, but some of it happened because I turned my intention towards it and feeling like I didn't, want to go to AWP and be like, I'm a poet here, and then be at a rock club on stage and be like, I'm a violinist singer or whatever, you know, musician, and then be in front of a classroom of, of adults learning Torah. And like, I'm a Torah teacher now. It just – it began to feel like I'm, I'm one person <laughs> and I I might dress a little differently for them, but I I'm not someone who like – puts on a really different, I kind of am who I am. I'm not a, I'm not actually particularly theatrical, you know, like I just need kind of get what you get with me. And, and I think that I began to both naturally uh, evolve into more interdisciplinary work that combined my media that I work in um, and modes and also intentionally um, start to combine them. And It took so long for my first... I mean, my first book was written over 18 years, and I sent it out for, I think, four years, and it was rejected from so many tiny presses, you know, before it, like, miraculously won this prize. Um, So I was not... I was just trying to... I really wanted a book, you know, and I really felt like that was when I could call myself a poet, because even though I knew I was a poet and 90% of that book was written six years before it was published... When you're like, I do this in this, and I'm also a poet. Like, often, that is not a good sign. (laughs) So I think that publishing that book and being so blessed to have, you know, C.D. Wright, to have the book be be born in this um, beautiful lineage. I mean, I would have been thrilled to publish it with just like a small press down the block. And I I love like DIY. That's how I release my music. Um, But I think that it was nice to feel like I don't have to have anxiety about calling myself a poet anymore. Someone else did that for me.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so now I can mess with it, you know. <laughs> um, and so when my, when I was writing my second book, which was much more intentionally written on a theme kind of during the years of um, pregnancy, birth, and early parenthood, and I was really examining that through and surviving it <laughs> through writing it, I pretty early on felt like, you know, my, my music life is in this book somehow. And it was such a, a nonverbal time. Um, and I felt like the music, my music life was actually in some ways more equipped to investigate that time than than my verbal life. But I needed to do it in poetry because um, that is a language that is maybe my basic kind of soul language. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll write the book, but I'll also create a soundtrack to go with it. And over the years, I've been playing more and more violin through electronic pedals, which really expand the range of sounds that a violin can make. And they make this kind of dreamy, vibey world, which really resonated to me with um, that world of like the body, that kind of wordless, languageless, sleepless world. So I basically improvised this soundtrack um, underneath a few readings before the book came out in preparation. I did a couple friendly kind of work in progress uh, readings at Mother Foucault's amazing bookshop Mm -hmm. in um, Portland. Shout out to Motherfukers, um, and then and then when I went on book tour, which was very DIY and all booked by me, <laughs> I just brought my my rig and anywhere I could, I um read along with the music. So mm. I can do a little bit of that now, if you want. Yeah, so I'll just like build a little music, read. Maybe I'll build a little music, read one more. Perfect. Okay. Cathedral. I type the wrong year. I hold the amethyst in my mouth like a sharp purple tongue. I bleed on the chair by mistake. So much blood. I make raspberry leaf tea. I make mistakes. I get a little droopy here and there. We agree on an earthquake meetup location. We plan to stay married. I cry for the third child I don't want and won't have. So much I could not have understood before turning into an asshole. So much I failed to do when I rang the bell to the cathedral and left my heart on the steps wrapped in its swaddling clothes. Once we were helpless. The house slid right off its foundation, the ground became water, it buckled like a hand. We are still telling the story, even though we are temporarily strong with our electric companies and our faucets. be human <laughs> I pressed the button and the poem changed so maybe it wants me to do a different one okay I'll do this one geode the plagues we wished upon ourselves with aloe juice and cayenne the planets we strained to reach That was how being young tasted, each of us a geode looking to be cracked and to crack each other open over and over. I am no longer young except to those who are older in the way that youth moves along the conveyor belt at a consistent distance. I drink water now. I try to be gentle. The years crack you open enough. grow wise. One day I awoke to find myself in an unfamiliar body, knees like tree trunks, passages in my belly, eyes two pools of tea. I began to understand the two sides of this sheath I wear, an old used suit, and the chariot I ride through blessed days and nights. I began to feel the ones who will live millennia from now hiding inside my pockets like poppy seeds. By this time, I could barely remember the body I wore before. I thought to myself, now that I have been broken, I can begin.
0: Wow. I I'm really in awe. <laughs> it feels almost weird to talk into this space. It really feels like the whole room changed mm. and um yeah, like that feeling that I have when people sing mm-hmm, in a, in mm-hmm. a room and um you know, or or I'm really in it watching a dance and mm. then Everything just changes um I do have so many earthly questions, so you read three poems mm-hmm. um from the book, and just sort of one um organically leading to the other. How much of what we just heard is improvised or it, how much of it is the same each time? It's a hundred percent improvised. Mm-hmm. I do you
1: know, kind of. Have a certain palette that this lends itself to, so it's not usually gonna like come out sounding like free jazz or something, but I never know what's going to come out of my fingers
0: before I play it mm. and you know i'm so much of this is very selfish self involved questions that I'm asking you, um or maybe a nicer way for me to say that is relates to my own interests, mm. yeah, I mean I as you know, I'm doing this audio project, mm-hmm. and except I'm not also a musician. Um, I'm a, I'm very excited about it. I feel really lucky to be able to do this to almost entertain the notion of this and the financial risk of it. And but there's also been a lot of shame for me mm-hmm. in in that I've pushed through, uh, specifically around performance. Mm, and yes. oh my god. You know, this question of like, who do I think I am that I'm going to do that? Like, why is my book worth performing um, or making an audio version of it? And then also for me specifically, the pieces in the book um, tend to be very, very long. Mm -hmm. So there's already a lot of shame that I feel Mm -hmm. around like, why do I think it's okay to – Demand an audience's Mm -hmm. or a reader's attention for Mm -hmm. such a long period of time, Mm -hmm. and I think on top of that, I have always felt and more and more that my work is more accessible, more meaningful, more successful when I read it Mm. um, than it is on the page. And I think that, again, like I've been taught that that's a sign of failure mm. if you're a poet. Like, mm. why didn't you do it on the page? Like, the page is all you have. Why don't
1: we do it on the page? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so, you know, choosing to go further towards that rather than just feel guilty about it or hide yes. that yes. Or, or, you know, try to be something I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, but try to, you know, instead trying to, like, say, well, what if I am you know, not really a page poet, but I'm also not a spoken word poet, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in, in that same sense that I love so much, you know, and there's also one other element and then I'll stop talking so much, but I recently, uh, had the experience of having one of my pieces and I think of them really as pieces, not poems Mm -hmm. right now. Um, so I had one of my pieces performed by actors Mm -hmm. at this thing called Emotive Fruition, which is this incredible thing where they, pick poems, and then actors read it in front of a live audience. Mm. And mine was very funny. Mm. And one time my husband gave a, what I think is a really great definition of poetry, which is that it's basically observational comedy that's not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> and some people's poetry is more like that and someone's obviously less like that. Yeah, I think that, that like brilliant. perfectly defines and mm-hmm. I and I and I think like I felt really great about um the performance of my piece um by these actors, but I also left kind of just really turning this question over in my mind, like, well, what if I'm, you know, not A mediocre poet, but like just like a really mediocre comedian. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Like, is that okay with me? Could I embrace that? Could I go further into that? Um, Anyway, so I don't know. Have you had similar feelings of like shame? Shame. Have you had any feedback? Have you had any negative feedback or has it been all just wonderful? No one has ever criticize me for anything. It's, it's it's kind of a strange
1: thing. I don't know why. Um, I, I relate so much to what you're saying and I've, I've kind of two, two responses, one of which is very granular and one of which is more kind of conceptual. Um, so shame is like my constant companion in life. I mean, <laughs> and I think, you know, in right, I'm writing, like I said, this spiritual memoir and, um, I mean, my friends who have kind of read the first draft and my husband are like, oh my God, like shame is such a big part of this. And I never totally knew that about myself. And now that I know it, it seems so obvious that, I mean, what I think I, I might have described as like anxiety or something before mm-hmm. could equally be described as shame. And I mean, I, there are a lot of passages in the book about, um you know, I'm not trained as a performer. I'm trained as a classical musician. So you like get up and you do your thing and then you bow and you leave. And so when I found myself performing in bands where you're like expected to talk, um, or even when I was just a side woman and not talking, um, the experience of eyes on me on stage, um, would like unleash these fire tongues of shame that would be just like flailing me the entire time. And I just had to like think about my grandmother looking at me with love to like get me through. (laughs) For some reason, that's like what would get me through. And it was so loud. It was like almost all I could hear – it definitely did not help my performance you know and then over the years i just kind of did it enough that first of all i mean my skills improved because some some of that was it was very legitimate self criticism with an unnecessary like 10x amplification of like horror at the criticism, you know, it's like, okay, so you're like, not the most compelling, you know, banter person, like, so what? But in my mind, it was like, this is so humiliating. And everyone is just looking at me and thinking like, you know, I I mean, I come from a family where humility is a very big value. And it's sort of like the worst thing to do is to Like we're not like big storyteller, take up a lot of space. And, you know, like my dad is like this amazing expert in his field who is like so humble and so Mm -hmm. like doesn't, you know. So all those things also I think are challenging. Um, And now looking back, I see that shame as a sign that I was in the right direction, Mm -hmm. that I was headed in the right direction. I see it as like, you know, there's that book that a lot of people – love and a lot of people don't like called The the War of Art. I don't know if you know it. No, Despite, It's a very kind of masculine, martial, um, opposite of the artist way, basically. And it's basically like when you try to do art, you evoke forces of resistance, which will push back against you and do everything they can to get you not to do it. And you have to like overcome them. And for me, that's actually very useful because there is a, a kind of Buddhist like cutting through. They're like phantom demons that, like, if I'm trying to do something that's, you know, if you're trained and you have your bio and you have your resume and no one can say you don't know what you're doing, they don't really have something to latch onto. But when you're like, I'm going to try this genre, and I'm like not twenty, you know, I'm in my forties, and there are people being trained in this in college right now by experts, but I'm just going to do it, and I am doing it in front of people because I. I'm not in college anymore, so I don't have, like, 10 years to incubate this and perfect it. You know, to, for me, kind of realizing, you know, failure being part of the process – and I'm not going to read into you, shame, as a sign of failure, but as a sign of courage, basically, you know. So that that's my that's my practical advice. Like, it sounds awesome. <laughs> Go for it. It sounds like going the right track. Um, and then, you know, what I was thinking, actually, while I was kind of finishing that reading, was that when I was talking about the priest tradition before I was talking about it in a very specifically Jewish way, um because you know that's the my classically trained spiritual tradition, so I feel like I have more ability to you know speak about it with um knowledge. but the truth is that the way that I actually most deeply kind of relate to that idea, and I almost forgot this until this conversation, but when I was looking for how to integrate these practices that I work in, I I was just kind of like, what what, what word could describe it? And then I I got Jill Hammer's book. And even though her book is specifically, you know, the Hebrew priestess, I realized that that word is the one thing that can hold writing a poem, performing a poem, writing music, performing music, sitting next to a 12-year-old teaching them to chant the Torah, sitting with a person who's suffering and kind of trying to use like whatever kind of... Chaplaincy skills I've picked up over the course of, of my life. Caring for my children, even, you know, um, trying to be a good person in the world, like all those things. What I'm called to be, I feel like, is, you know, the midwife who over the years sees such a range that they know when to refer someone to that person, but they also know that there's so much that they can hold. And it's not just about like literally helping the baby come out, but it's about helping the woman become a mother and helping the, the family adjust and checking, you know, being there for the postpartum, which the OBGYN is not, you know, weighing the baby in the woman's home, in the mother's home two weeks later, you know, and like telling her she's not a failure because she had a C section, which my midwife, you know, is so amazing to. She's a home birth midwife and like that coming from her meant so much. Um, and so that that element of, I think that's a kind of priestessing of the body, and then I think there's a priestessing with art, which totally transcends genre. It transcends the difference between like page and stage, you know. And I feel like I'm like hearing that come from you. I
0: I, I feel very emotional. <laughs> I almost started crying just now because I I think I had a realization that I've never had before, which is that even though I feel this way. And I think part of it was what you're saying and part of it was having you perform in this space at this moment, you know, right here. You know, I was thinking about my mom um, telling stories and, mm. you know, her work in the American revival of the storytelling tradition and the difference between telling a story and reading from mm. a book and mm. um how important that was to her to try to communicate to audiences and, and, and even how, as she got older, she got a little bit mean, Mm. uh, about noise, Mm. um, during the performance and like very mean about people looking at their phones Mm. and reading the newspaper, you know, literally at, you know, and expecting that their children were having an experience that they were not participating in. And, and she would really talk about the storytelling as a sacred space Mm. But until this moment, I think I hadn't really realized that I have some assumptions about performance Mm. as very masculine, as very egocentric, as very ambitious in a way that I both really crave but am sort of afraid of, um, as something that women or female identified people can only do if they feel a certain amount of comfort with their bodies. Mm-hmm. And it's not just comfort, it's like show-offy. Mm-hmm. And if I actually change the word from performance to ritual, mm-hmm. and I see the performance of a piece, um, whether I'm doing it alone in my study back there or whether I'm doing it in front of a live audience, I feel that I can participate in that in a way that as an audience member, I feel the ritual in the performances that I love that are, that go very deep for me. And I have never had that thought it's before. Yeah. 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 It's pretty, it's pretty profound.
1: And the first known, or the first poem by a known author is by the priestess and Edwana, right? But it's like that is performance is facilitating ritual
0: right and i think also the thing that that you said uh, and i don't want to forget this piece of it is you know you don't think about giving birth as a performance but we know firsthand the sacredness of being attended to during birth and mm. of having someone that you trust mm. and having a witness mm. and having a helper and having, whether it's a doula or a mm. midwife mm. or a birth partner mm. or whatever. I, I know that there are women, you know, for lots of reasons who give birth alone, but very few. Mm-hmm. And there's something I think about that element, too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that performance, rather than it being mm. like, you you know, a, an act of domination over the audience. Yes. Right, like yeah. that that's what ties those together, yes, you know hmm. Mm-hmm. um, should we do do you wanna do one more poem, sure, okay, great.
1: Ancestor alphabet. I see the shape of the Aleph and the shape of the Lamed. I see the shape of the final Tzadi and the shape of the Hay. I see the shape of your nose and the shape of your hands, which are the same shape as your father's hands. We first kissed in a bar after he gave me a small plastic fish purchased in Chinatown. Now he is cleaning up the kitchen, listening to a podcast. I see the shape of the dead tulips beginning to crumple upon themselves in the vase. I hear a fake English accent. It's a comedy podcast. I hear anxiety beneath the listening. I see petals turn brown. I see worms under the earth. I see many leaves. I see toys and books, a rumpled couch, a bowl of pink salt with a tiny spoon. Oh, Asherah, keep us safe. I see heaven. I see bed. I see mirror. I see porridge. I feel the ancients watching us. I watch you as you sleep. My midwife, you sat in the rocking chair and watched to keep me safe. You checked your phone. You checked my cervix. When it had gone on for too long, you drove me to the hospital on all fours in the trunk of your hatchback as I screamed over the speed bumps. So much for home birth. Strangers watched in the ER as you braced your body against the wall so I could lean on you. Oh, Mary, now I'm alone with my baby and you are elsewhere, your hand inside some other mother.
0: This has been episode 70 with Alicia Joe Rabins. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by myself, Nicholas Fuenzalita, and Christine LaRusso. Our social media director is Doreen Wang, and our editor is Becca DiGregorio. All the music you heard in this episode was written and performed by Alicia Joe Rabins. Many thanks to the publishers who give commonplace books and to our wonderful patrons for making the show possible. Alicia Joe's A Cottage for Bernie Madoff film project still needs funding. And Alicia Joe and I are currently collaborating on one of the pieces in my new audio project, Sound Machine. If you'd like to donate directly to the making of that collaborative sound piece, you can make a one-time donation to Commonplace and specify what you want the money used for. You can find links to donate either to Alicia's film or our collaborative project on the Alicia Joe Rabin's episode page on CommonPodcast.com. In honor of Mother's Day, perhaps for your actual mother or for the mother you wanted but didn't have, for the mother you are or wish to be, for the one you love, the one who is precious to you, I'll leave you with Alicia Jo Rabin's song, Rubies. In the liner notes, Alicia writes that this is a retranslation of a proverb about the ideal woman, Proverbs 31, who turns out to be quite tough traditionally sung by husbands to wives on Friday night before Sabbath dinner. Alicia translated the Hebrew and married it to an American folk song. Take care, be well, and thank you, each of you, for listening. Like a merchant ship